I was um, encountering young people who were being beat up, who were being thrown out of their house, who were unable to, to even walk to school and feel safe during certain times because they knew that there was nobody protecting them. And so within that context, uh, I switched from an individual responsibility kind of perspective to, listen, we've got to look at the systems that are making, making them fall into these patterns that are unhealthy for them. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton. And today's episode comes from Jean Katubai. Hey, Jean. Hey. What are we going to hear today? Yeah, I'm really excited for folks to hear this one. Uh, for this episode, we talked to Rick Okoto. He's the education director at Our Family Coalition based out of the Bay Area. They provide support groups, workshops, PDs, and free curriculum for the purpose of advancing equity for the full spectrum of uh, LGBTQ families and children. All right, let's hear it. On today's episode, we're here with Rick Okoto from Our Family Coalition. Hi, Rick. Hi there, everybody. So we had the chance to meet each other earlier this year. Um, My class was doing a project and our students uh, identified issues that were impacting San Diego and um, formed groups that would then come up with these action plans to try to implement change in our community. And so we had a group that was focusing on LGBTQ issues and you were on that panel for them. And I will say that, you know, you spent two days with my kids and they just absolutely loved you. There was just such a sense of um, mutual respect and interest from you where like after the two days, they were just like, when is the next time that we can hang out with Mr. Rick? It was so cool. And like, they felt so connected to you. And Uh, after that day, I was just like, I have to have him on the show. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, part of that is I am genuinely inspired uh, by your students and just the projects that they're doing, especially in middle school, uh, just being able to confidently say we want to support our LGBTQ peers and we want to have an environment that is welcoming to everybody. It is it's part and parcel of why I do this work. Oh, that is so good to hear. We love a good mutual positive experience. (laughs) Um, I was just wondering now if we can get into like, how did you get started with this work? Sure. I I do want to establish a bit about like where I am right now. And so I am the education director at Our Family Coalition. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, Our Family Coalition is a family organization that serves LGBTQ families and children. And so we were founded in 2002, but we were put together by two, well, it's a combination of two um, family, queer family organizations that started in the mid 90s. And so if you're wondering how I got or what, you know, how this organization came to be, and subsequently how I got to it, this is the beginning of that story. Now, as far as me, uh, you know, you asked, you know, for, for me to expand on describing myself as a gay cisgender Filipino Bay Area native from San Jose, also a gay gamer and an uncle. And each of those things I think that I put into that introduction is I think really important to expand upon because I think that when we think about the people that are in these spaces to really affect education, 
um, or in these spaces that are fun, like in gaming spaces, that there isn't really a connection about those folks, right? About like the real lives behind the people who do this kind of work. And so I'll go real quickly through each of those different things. So gay, um, you know, uh, same sex, loving, whatever you want to call it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm gay. <laughs> so there's that cisgender. If uh, for those of you that are not familiar with the terminology, it is the um, so for folks that are born into the gender that they identify with as currently, that's the that's the term cisgender. And so cis, the root of that means on the same side. So I'm on the same side of the gender that was given to me, assumed for me when I was born, which is categorically different from transgender, trans, the root being across from, right? Which people are across from the gender that they were assumed to be when they were born. And so I, I use cisgender to describe myself. Uh, and the reason that word is really important is because if you didn't have that word to describe folks that are cisgender, um, then what is the opposite of transgender? What is the other word, right? Then you have this like conversation about normal or abnormal or whatever else. And so we need a word for us so that the, so it falls into this categorization of normalcy. So that's that. Uh, Filipino, uh, I'm a first generation born here in the United States. Filipino, my parents and my family were all immigrants. Uh, my uncle was uh, able to bring over the family because uh, he joined the Navy, the military in, in the Philippines. And if for those of you that are part of High Tech High, if you know uh, Miss Judy, <laughs> Ashyong. Uh, I love Miss Judy. <laughs> uh, her dad is is uh, is my uncle. Uh, he is one of my heroes, and uh, yeah, that's so that's that's my family. Uh, as a as a Bay Area native, at first that part of my family, Judy and and her dad and and her sisters. And mom, they they lived in Guam and Hawaii and all these different places. Uh, when we came over, uh, a lot of his sisters, my mom and my aunts, all moved to the Bay Area, right around San Francisco and San Jose. And so that's that's where we put down a lot of roots. I think Sunnyvale was probably the first place around there. So I'm a, I'm very much a Bay Area kid. This is <laughs> this is where my identity comes from, right? <laughs> I'm also from the Bay too, and something that's coming to mind, you know, and we're I know we're gonna get to the other stuff also, but I was just wondering, like, for people who might not be super mm-hmm. familiar, um, what makes the Bay so special? What makes that area so different? I think it has a real advantage in being uh, basically a port city in a lot of different ways. And so it's a port city, obvious, or a port location, obviously, because of the Bay itself. San Francisco and Oakland serve as international ports for a lot of things. So a lot of people come through there, a lot of trade, a lot of that kind of different stuff. But it is also a hub for a lot of different kinds of innovation. And I think it is it was facilitated by that diversity that came through um, those ports and the ability for businesses to build and innovate based off of those different ideas coming through. Yeah, it's kind of like through osmosis almost that people just get that Bay Area slag, right? Oh, I mean, I mean, right? Like, like when you ask me what what my cultural food is, of course, I'm going to go Filipino first because that's what my family did. But as soon as I stepped out the door, Mexican food, Indian food, Vietnamese food, right? Like Polish food. 
I will say I cannot find an Indian pizza anywhere outside of San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and I have tried and people look at me crazy like mm. what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's true, but I'll give you this. Your your California burritos, the the SoCal French fry burritos, you can't beat them. San Diego is the place. You're right. You know, but people <laughs> in San Francisco will argue with you about a wet burrito. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> I'm always like, is it that good? <laughs> Different strokes, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sensing a segue now into like that last part that we were talking about with the gay gamer um, aspect. And I remember when you met my students, that was the one that you sounded the most like excited to share about. And so I'm wondering, you know, especially as someone who is involved in education, what are the different um, aspects of like gaming and how do they mm. relate to the world of education? Because in my experience, I feel like I know a lot of teachers and people in education who are into games. I just don't really hear people sharing that passion right. out loud very much. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I, I come from a really nerdy family. Okay. Uh, again, if, and I'm, I'm not putting my family in San Diego on read, but like they were the <laughs> alpha geeks. They're the ones that brought us to Star Trek and yeah. to Star Wars. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if it wasn't for Judy's sister, Eileen. Like, I wouldn't know if the rest of us would have been so geeky. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, quite honestly. Thanks, so, Happy Eileen. Yeah, right? <laughs> and she'd hate that. She, 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 calling her Ate, she hates that. So, yeah, thanks, thanks Ate Eileen. Anyway. <laughs> um. But but so I was surrounded by all of these different things. And, you know, the the geekiness, that that part of our culture, um, a lot of times is defined racially yeah. about who has access to it, who's represented in it and who it's written for. Mm -hmm. Right. We're seeing that in a lot of modern conversations about representation in movies and in video games and in comic books and yeah. who should be what and. Uh, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like, it's like, well, I, I grew up with this. And, you know, part of my legacy is Star Trek, where they really did push the envelope. It's nowhere near where it should be now. But like, the, the roots of that was really to say, hey, look, we've got this Russian guy in the middle of the Cold War here on our set. We've got this Scottish guy where we know that there is like some tension around around those issues. We've got this black woman who has a leadership role on the bridge. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Star Trek is um, the first interracial kiss on television, is it not? It is. It is between Captain Kirk and Uhura. Yeah. Oh. And uh, there's a great story behind that too. The 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 the, the uh, production company did not want to show that. And uh, what uh, to to his credit, to his credit, William Shatner was like, "I'm going to ruin every shot." Um, so that they, they use could it, use. Right? Yeah, I'm going to ruin every shot <laughs> that they could possibly use to use another thing until you you have to use the shot where where we are kissing. Wow, that's <laughs> incredible. Will Shatner, what a guy. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, within that context of, of geekery, this is this is the kind of thing that I grew up with. And and I, I really I love games. 
Um, I love games that are card games, board games, video games. And that, that has been a consistent kind of thing within my family. Now, video games um, is, you know, that play, played a large, large part uh, of my, of my growing up. And I'm going to age myself here, right? Like I started with the, the PC junior and Atari's, right? This is, this is before they were considered cool. Um, and, and it was, it was a, it was a really fun way to be able to, to engage in activities that, that are foreign to me. And so you, you talk about, um, like ge- video games, like, oh, I, f- I believe it was called, um, oh my God, like Spelunker or something where you were like literally jumping across and, and basically playing Indiana Jones. Like you, and so the, the, the part of that is like, not only are you, uh, like I could watch a movie about Indiana Jones. I could read a book about that kind of adventure, but if there are very few ways that I can like participate right? Without breaking international law, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> of course, never. We cannot condone that on this podcast. <laughs> right. And so this is, this is a, a really fun way to get into, into that story. And so one of the, th- and you say that a lot of educators are, are wary or don't talk about the fact that they might be into video games. And I think that's a shame. Mm. And the reason for that is I want you to think of any sort of media that you use to learn. Okay. Now I want you to think about the pedagogy that you might use with all those different kinds of media to get a lesson across, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in any of those media, do any of the media, by nature of the media itself, require that you improve in order to progress? Hmm. No, I feel like it's very like a consumptionist sort of relationship, huh? Right. Whereas video games, you got to get good, to use a gamer phrase. You have to improve your knowledge, your reaction time, your interpretation of signals, all of these different things in order to progress. And so the... uh, the pedagogy there is one where you as a player are invested to continue the story in a way that means that you must improve. There's very few media that's like this. And it's not some outside force that's telling you, ah, you got to do this. It's you yourself saying, I want to know, and I want to get better. And so it takes the lessons that we generally attribute to the to sports or team play. It takes art. It takes literature, right? Because there's so many rich story and plot lines now. It takes technology and math. It takes all of the different subjects and turns it into this self-motivated educational tool. Yeah, it's so cool to hear you talk about it in that sense because I think in so many ways, gaming and education are often... I don't know, regarded in opposition to each other, mm-hmm. when in actuality, I think they complement one another really, really well. So, um, yeah, I just wanting, I'm wanting, I'm curious to learn more about like, how, when did you start working with young people? Because, mm-hmm. you know, just a clarification, you are not a classroom teacher, <laughs> right? And so if not the classroom, when was your kind of first interactions? And when did you kind of decide this is the path that I want to take? Well, uh, the, the most honest answer I have is by accident. <laughs> we love honesty here. Yeah, yeah. I, I got here by accident. And so um, 
when I was when I was younger, uh, I remember in high school uh, taking those aptitude tests that tell you what kind of job your personality is best suited for. In any case, I will never forget the three jobs that were recommended for me when I took it. And the three jobs were a public speaker uh, slash politician, counselor, um, therapist slash teacher, and priest. Oh, wow. Okay, you know what? I think I remember you mentioning this when we first met. Yes, right? I remember now. <laughs> yeah. And so those were those were the three things. And the thing for me is coming from an immigrant family, uh, especially, and I don't know if this is true for, for other cultures, but it is true of my family. Like the, the gold standard for where your kids are supposed to like aspire to be is, was doctor and lawyer at the time. Those were the respect. I think that still stands. <laughs> right, right, right. But because those are the the well respected, high paying professions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and for me, having had that test, uh, it kind of it was it was freeing in a lot of ways because I'm like, oh, I I have been working towards this goal, but I didn't really like it, and this this just like tells me right like. It's not it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. It's not something that interests me. And it, it freed me to go and try try other pursuits, um, to say the least. Um my my thought process at that point was, all right, well, once I graduate from high school, then what I want to do is I I want to really learn how to be a therapist. And the reason for that is because in my friend group, a lot of them, without me prompting, they came to me whenever there was something that was over overbearing or that was difficult, or they came to me without fail. And so I thought to myself, this seems like a natural inclination, might as well use it. Like it's a talent, you know, you want to help people. So go do that. And I, uh, and so I, I, I did, I went to Seattle University up in Washington and my undergraduate degrees, I got a dual major in Spanish and psychology. And my thought process behind that was, okay, I know I want to help people. I know that like doing this therapy thing seems like the right thing for me to do. So I'm going to go into psychology to learn more about like the ins and outs of that. And I also thought to myself, okay, uh, I want to move back to California at some point. And if I want to really help people, then I need to expand my ability to communicate. And so if I want to learn another language, it's going to be Spanish or Vietnamese or Tagalog or, um, or Hindi, right? Any of those California heavy languages. And because I grew up in the Bay Area, like I grew up really close to to Mexican families and had really close Mexican friends. And so I had always thought Spanish was just this gorgeous language and did that. And so I I used my degrees and I'm like, okay, now I can now I can go and pursue a career um, and see what's out there with with the stuff that I've learned. I got a job at a uh, LGBTQ community center in San Jose. It's the Billy DeFrank Center. 
and they hired me as the uh, as the youth coordinator. And so I was just supposed to run groups with a bunch of LGBTQ kids, and and that was that was going to be the beginning of my career. And so part of that was to run basically therapy groups with with LGBTQ kids. And this was you have to remember this was the early two thousands. And as I was doing these groups with them, uh, it was becoming incredibly clear that. I could not diagnose them with any sort of mental problem. What I was finding is that they were reacting healthily, properly to uh, unfair stressors. If you are burned, for example, and you yell, right, that's expected that you're going to yell. And these kids were yelling because they were burning. Mm. The stressors that I were seeing Mm. was on the light end of things. I was seeing that kids were afraid to talk about their sexual orientation or gender at school. I was seeing that they were upset that they didn't, uh, that they weren't able to bring their dates to, to dances or proms. And that's, that's heavy, but that's also on the lighter side of things. On the heavier side of things, I was um, encountering young people who were being beat up, who were being thrown out of their house, who were unable to, to even walk to school and feel safe during certain times because they knew that there was nobody protecting them. And so within that context of they're responding to being burned rather than there's something wrong with them and that's why they're they're not functioning well, uh, I, I switched from an individual responsibility uh, kind of perspective to listen, we've got to look at the systems that are making making them fall into these patterns that are unhealthy for them. What's the environment? And so I, I quickly shifted, and it was it was like night and day. I had I remember maybe like seven to ten people that were coming to those meetings at the beginning, and it was it was wheel spinning in the mud. Like they were just like we're sad, and we don't know what to do about it. Um, Right. And if it was if it was like a mental health thing, then I could give them strategies for, you know, feeling better, better about themselves, for eating healthier, for like all the different things that you might think about. Um, but there's nothing to do when somebody's beating you up. And so I shifted and I said, OK, if this is the thing, then let's talk about what you need at your schools uh, to make it a better environment for you. And so they started um, bringing in ideas about what could be better at their school, what needed to be taught, um, what are some safety protocols that could happen, what are some safe teachers that they could talk to, and they started sharing with one another. And let me tell you, like it went from like seven to ten kids to like forty that were showing up on a regular basis because now it wasn't I'm going to go to this place and talk about how I'm sad. It's I'm going to go to this place and figure out how I can make my school a better place for us. Right? I'm not I'm not a victim anymore. Now I'm I'm an agent of change. Wow, what a powerful experience. Do you still keep in contact with any of your former kids? Yeah, it's funny you you say that. I I found another one of my uh one of my youth who gave a TED talk and I'm like, "Oh my god, wow. they're doing better than me." <laughs> You know, not that it's a competition or anything. You know? It's not. It's not. But I'm like, okay. 
Oh okay. my goodness. Well, you know, what a, what a dream, though. That's like in education, that's what you want, right? Yeah. That your kids are going to surpass you eventually and, and, and yeah. flourish. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty fun. Like uh, the, uh, the youth group, like that grew into its own after I left um, and grew it as much as I could. It grew even more and became its own nonprofit. And now one of the youth that was in my programs is the executive director of that organization. Oh my gosh, what a full circle <laughs> moment right there. Yeah, so wow. so Adrian, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if Adrian, if you're listening to this at all, like I, it sounds cheesy, but I'm so proud of you. I don't <laughs> oh, that's so incredible. Yeah. So what's the name of the nonprofit that he's working with now? Uh, sh- uh, th- I believe they go by they, and they are the uh, youth, oh my gosh, youth space in San Jose. Wow, what a dream. And also, thank you so much for clarifying for pronouns. Yeah, no worries. So that was the beginning of your career, right? And I think, like many of our listeners, I'm wondering, how did your role evolve over the years and how has it changed? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot of the same work, just maybe more complex or mm-hmm. just d- different in a lot of ways. So um, maybe it gets easier as time goes by. I don't know. Wanting to learn from your expertise here, Rick. <laughs> well, it, well, yes and no. So it's interesting, right? So I'm going to use social work terms now. And so I, I went from a very micro practice, right? Therapy and one-on-ones and group therapy with people to a meso practice, right? Which means that I help those folks figure out ways to engage with the system to make it better for themselves to now a macro practice actually um, shifting and helping shift those systems directly by working with the California Department of Education and with other education um, nonprofits and with schools and districts, right? And so the the work has has shifted in in the the degree and um, actually about the knowledge set too. And so the way that I got into this is because I was helping these kids um, really figure out what the laws were, what protected them, what they could do in their schools. I became incredibly knowledgeable about uh, what the laws were about what the schools were responsible for, about what the kids were allowed to do and what they should be allowed to do. Um, And so I I was invited into more forums of talking about what it means to really address LGBTQ representation and rights in all of these different spaces. And um, through that work, uh, it just it just evolved right from from again from that micro level to this macro level where now I get to talk to um, in fact last week I was just um, on a conference call with the Department of Education right uh, about how how to affect these things and what are what it comes down to is now I'm not just talking about the laws I am literally um, like, I'm literally affecting the laws, create helping create the laws and helping implement the laws across the state. Yeah, so in so. a really big way, you're helping to design the ecosystems for education, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really weird to think about because the, you know, my my MO at the beginning is I just want to I just want uh folks like me to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And uh, this is why I say it's by accident. I didn't, you know, I wasn't in middle school or high school thinking, oh, I want to be this, like, this this person who's affecting policy. Like, I studied psychology. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and that, what, what this makes me think of is, like, a follow-up question that I have. Um, you know, what advice do you have to classroom teachers about mm-hmm. um putting together like a working knowledge of like these policies around teaching LGBTQ plus histories and just about LGBTQ plus um, topics in general. Um, How useful is Mm. it to, to have a working knowledge of those laws Mm. um, when you're going into the classroom? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You know, these kinds of questions are hard because the nuance of the different situations that educators might find themselves in, are going to translate the words that I'm going to say next differently. Because honestly, the what you need to know about the law as an educator is that you are supported to ensure that your student is protected to learn and grow in an environment where they do not feel threatened, right? So th- there's all these details around that. There's all these different laws about the specifics around that. But as long as you are going towards that particular goal, right, that mindset around how you how you teach, then for for the most part, you're gonna you're gonna find that the law is on your side, right? Especially here in California, uh, when you're talking about gender and sexual orientation and around race and around ethnicity. We really want to make sure that there is an environment where where our kids, regardless of where they come from or um, what their belief systems are or who 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 they find attractive or who they love, right, is 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 only a part of the story that they they are supported no matter who they are, right? And so I think that is the larger context for this. That being said, I know that there's a lot of hesitancy for educators around. Um, either going into some of these more hot button topics uh, because of the way that your community might respond to that. And this is where I think that the specifics around the laws might help you. Uh, And so it's, it's, it's good to know, for example, that you are absolutely allowed to talk about LGBTQ issues in the classroom. Nobody can complain about that, right? Like, Uh, you're absolutely allowed to say the words lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender, even at an elementary school level, because in essence, what you're doing is just describing a person that actually exists, right? (laughs) Um, And so I think those kinds of nuances are are important for when you find uh, yourself as an educator wondering about what you're allowed to do. Um, because you need, you know, it's good to know where you're protected when when those uh, rights of yours to be able to talk about these things are challenged. Um, I would also say that for those of you that are listening that are admin- the administ- administrative part of education, that's your responsibility. Teachers have a billion things that they have to keep track of. Part of your responsibility as an administrator is to make sure that they can do that job. So know these laws. If you're a principal, if you're a superintendent, if you're a vice principal, if you're a dean, if you're any of those other functions, it's it's it is your responsibility to know these things. And I know, like there's, I was just on you know on the phone with the CSBA the other day. I know that those like different things shift um, at a moment's notice, and and you have to. It's your job to support your teachers. 
<laughs> Period. Like that's what you signed up for. That's what you signed up for. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, and you know, it's really affirming to hear you um talk about this because um you know as a humanities mm. teacher there are often times where we're talking about critical history in particular right where certain students will you know just bring up very mm. you know, just more quietly like hey miss jean you know my family doesn't really believe in that or i might be uncomfortable with this can i step away and so just mm. hearing you say that the law is on our side in that regard mm-hmm. um just makes me feel really comfortable to continue those type of lessons because that's what our students need. Right, right, right. You know, it's it's funny that you bring that particular scenario up because what we tell teachers to use at that point is is just to bring up the fact that, you know, in, in, in sixth grade, uh, we, we talk about world religions. Right. And we talk about the world religions that come from Egypt as an ancient religion. We, uh, as ancient religions, we talk about more modern religions around like the Judeo-Christian like pantheon of things that 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 we talk about and at no point when we're talking about world religions are we like you should join this religion right we're just we're letting you know that they exist that there are people that you're going to encounter and that right like especially when we're talking about things like ancient religions it's like at no point are you afraid that your kid is going to come home and be like well i worship raw now because we heard about it (laughs) right like You know, so, you know, it's that it's that same kind of thing. Just saying that a, a type of person exists does not d- doesn't break anything. And if it does break something, then that's not on the teacher. There's something else going on. <laughs> mm, I feel that. And yeah. you know what? This is making me think a lot about conversations that we've had with guests in the past um, around this idea that as educators, it is our foremost responsibility to ensure the safety of the most Mm. vulnerable in the room. And oftentimes, whether Mm. we like to admit it or not, you know, the chaos of the school day kind of just gets us lost in a sauce with it all. (laughs) And so I'm wondering from your experience, although you are not a classroom Mm -hmm. teacher, you are certainly um, an expert in this area, particularly I think with your background in mm-hmm. psychology, right? Is how do we set up the mm-hmm. space? What type of norms do we set up with our students to ensure um, that everyone feels seen and and validated? And I'm wondering from your experience, what are the, the non-negotiables and maybe what are some of the things that maybe we should try to avoid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So when it comes to things like norms, I think that that has to be put into the cultural context of the classroom that you're talking about. I'm not talking about the cultural context of the community as a whole or like the city or even the school. I'm talking about there are, there's a cultural context for each classroom, right, and how that operates. And so I think that you have to first and foremost figure out what that context is for your classroom based off of who is there and who you as the teacher, what you want to grow that into or what you want to nurture within that classroom. And so that's always my first thing because some classrooms are gonna be disciplined classrooms. Some classrooms are gonna be like free for all classrooms, right? It's it's all different <laughs> and they all have their uses, right? They all have their uses. So establish that part first. Now, now we, we, we started with the, the word around norms and I think uh, that the only real norm that has to be uniform across 
is that you're going to be humble, that you're going to respect one another for the differences that are going to come in, whether that is about socioeconomics or gender or race or religion, any of those kinds of things. You don't know that other person's life the way that other person does. And so have some, have some humility, have some respect, have some, um, have some reverence towards the other lives that are in that room with you. And that to me is, is the first thing for establishing those norms. Because again, when we talk about the education code and we talk about what, but what people are responsible for, that is all very important when push comes to shove, but push and and shove are not going to happen if we start on the basis of, okay, I, 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 I see that you are different uh, from how, how I am and that's okay. And let's talk, let's, if we need to, let's talk about how we, how we maneuver those differences. And that to me, that has to be the, the basis of the conversation. There's so much, so much tension around, around these differences nowadays. And I think it's because there is a misunderstanding uh, about erasure, uh, about how we respect folks and the feeling that you cannot bring your true self to a space because of um, because of all of uh, because of all of these diversity measures. What we're saying is <clears throat> that the exclusionary language that might come from things is the stuff that we have to watch. That that the 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 irony of being inclusive is that once the the exclusive part is is put to the forefront then the rest of the conversation falls to the wayside because it cuts people out and what we want to do is we want to be able to open the doors and say you belong in this classroom you are worthy of being taught and of learning and it is our responsibility not just as the teacher because i think there's a lot of pressure put on the teacher but it's our responsibility as a classroom Mm-hmm. to to figure out what our community looks like so that we can all succeed. Yeah. yeah. And I'm making a lot of connections to something that you said earlier with your work with that youth center. Um, and I remember you saying that there was some level of like co-design with your students, right? About how they wanted the space to look and feel like. And so my question for you is especially... Um, for teachers who might be a little bit newer to this or um, might be feeling some discomfort or hesitancy, how much would you advise that we elicit that um, kind of participation from our students? Um, Like how much should we say, you know, what do you guys think versus like just saying this is kind of what it is and we trust that you trust us enough that we are um, kind of working in the best interest of everybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. Now, are you talking about in context of the students themselves or the larger context of like the families and the teachers? Oh, I was referring to the first one, but I guess the second is also good too. <laughs> Rick, you're like the perfect guest to have on, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I've been grappling with these questions for decades now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, when it comes when it comes to the classroom, 
what I would say about that is you yourself as an educator have to recognize that when we talk about including LGBTQ history in social science, what we're doing is we're saying that there is a particular part of history in social science that we have ignored, that there is a impoverishment of our education because we have not included these lenses or perspectives before. And so my, my non-queer example around this is, let's talk about the Civil War. We know that there, um, there were the different battles that took place. We know that there, were legislation, there was legislation from the North and the South that had different things to say about this. We know the, the primary actors um, in those different uh, battles. We know all of those kinds of things. And up until recently... The, the voices of the people who were most affected by this, right? The people who were enslaved, like unless you were quote unquote, an exceptional hero, like if you were a Harriet Tubman. <laughs> no mention then at we all. Didn't, right, we, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing about that. So when we're talking about including LGBTQ history, it's the same thing. We know that in, in this century, this uh, this particular period of history, that there is a lot of different things that LGBTQ people brought to the forefront. What happens then if we don't talk about the positionality, about who they were and what they were experiencing in order for that to happen? Now, again, to go back to the example of, of enslaved people. So let's say we're talking about Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. If you didn't talk about her gender or her skin color, are you still talking about Harriet Tubman? Mm. Right? <laughs> not so much. Like who and what does that become if we're not talking about the the identity and the circumstances by which they came to the decisions and the actions that they took within history? Right. I think it's necessary to to figure out uh, that and and that line there is you know, would you, you asked, you know, as far as the students, should you just, you know, let them trust you or have them guide you, et cetera, et cetera. Would you be asking that same question around Black, African-American history? Would you be asking that same question about Asian history, right? Would, would we say, okay, well, we'll talk to them about MLK, but if they really don't like, like the part about lynchings, we're not going to tell them that part? <laughs> Such a clear and succinct analogy. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I heard you use a couple of terms that I'm hoping you could clarify for our listeners. Mm. So I heard you use the terms lens, perspective, and positionality. And I'm hoping after you clarify those, let's get into some queer history. This is the part that I'm really excited to hear from you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, so the first one was lens. And so when we talk about lens, we basically think about a particular period in history or a particular event in history. And what pers- like what lens are you putting on it to, to show a particular thing? Because you know um, that when you, in science, right, when you pr- apply a particular lens, that you can see different particles, you can see different angles, you can see... Uh, different refractions, all those kinds of things in science, right? Same thing applies to social science. If you look at the Civil War and you apply a lens of gender, 
what are what are the things that we're going to discover? What are the things that we're uh, going to be able to talk about through the lens of gender? And so we know that as we talk about history and social science, a lot of times that history is taught through a male perspective, right? A man's perspective, that lens. And so if you put a lens, a, a women's lens on that particular history, then you start seeing interesting things about the Civil War. You start seeing that there were some women that cross-dressed in um, male soldier uniforms to participate in the war. You start seeing that there are um, that are women that provided provisions in ways that men couldn't because they were not allowed to travel in certain places. There's all of these different perspectives that that lens can that you can apply with that lens that enrich our understanding of what happened. And so that next point is perspective, which is analogous to lens, but it doesn't necessarily mean that larger like all of women. You can have the perspective of, uh, for example, Harriet Tubman. What was she experiencing at that moment in time through her different identities for her to get to her abolitionist work? Same thing can be said about Harvey Milk when he when he was uh, fighting for LGBTQ teachers to be able to teach here in California. What led him to that point, that perspective of that person who's experienced those kinds of traumas and joys and and all those other parts of life, what perspective brought them to where they were at? The other thing um, was positionality. And positionality is tricky because it is malleable depending on the context in which you use it. It is literally figuring out what perspectives are being uh, highlighted at the time. And from those perspectives, from the person who, uh, who, who held those perspectives, what were they allowed to do in the, in the, time and space that they were in. And so to use Harvey Milk again, as a man, did he experience a certain privilege to be able to say certain things about education that a queer woman might not have? His positionality in that forum would be different. And that's not to say that like a woman couldn't have done that, but how did that change that? And so we really want to be able to, again, explore all of the different facets that might affect how that history is, is being taught and how we understand how that history came to be. If we, if we want to get real modern about this, uh, we can talk about the shootings that recently happened in Atlanta. The excuses that the, the murderer in Atlanta used was that he was a sex addict and he was not racist. Yet his targets were all Asian spaces. And in this country, there is a history of exotification around Asian women's bodies and a narrative about the worth of those bodies. And so how disposable does it become for somebody who says, well, I was addicted to sex and this was the problem. And so I eliminated it. Mm -hmm. The humanity's lost. Yeah. If you if you take that positionality of, of somebody who is um, who had access to that type of violence, who had access to that type of language versus somebody who is considered or deemed and treated um, less than. The narrative of that being forgivable 
excusable is is something that is proliferated. You know, and your point about the dehumanizing aspect of all of this just makes me think about how fast things happen in our culture, right? And how very little time we have to actually sit and think about and process what is going on around us. Mm-hmm. And I, to be honest, the last couple of weeks, I have struggled trying to figure out how do I make space to really have a meaningful conversation about what's been going on with my kids? Because I feel a heightened sense of responsibility to talk about it as a Filipino person who Mm. is Asian, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's really easy to be able to show a clip of what happened in Atlanta and then have a slide about the Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese internment, um, uh, about all of those different things that have marginalized Asian communities, right? And you can make that, you can make that throughput real easily. Right. And you know, this, I feel like this is something that just keeps getting brought up in our conversation is the importance of context and not only context, but just mm-hmm. like the building of understanding over time. And I think that's the part that oftentimes yes. is really hard, right? Is, is that aspect of time because it feels like it's always running away from us. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the the thing is, I'm not alone in that, right? The reason that we're working with the Department of Education right now is that they recognized that the students that were being sent to college, and this is is from history and social science teachers in college, uh, were, were complaining and saying, you are sending us students that are not prepared for the analysis that they need to do at a college level. They can recite the dates, they can recite the facts, they can recite the names, but they can't tell me why the Civil War was important. They can't tell me why Martin Luther King was significant. They can't tell me any of the the, the reasons that any of these things happened. So when we ask them to look at things like um, like the the legal structure of Russia and how that how that shifted over time. There's no context as to why those things relate to us and how it is a better or worse system depending on how it is applied. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I've always been super fascinated with this idea of history being like those two groups of people versus each other and nobody else mm-hmm. was there. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, um, what resources do you recommend for folks who are wanting to um, explore queer history and and teach them to our students? Okay. Well, I mean, so that's going to be different depending on grade level. But I will say that right now, Our Family Coalition, which is my organization, and One Archives Foundation out of USC down in LA, uh, we've partnered to create this website called lgbtqhistory.org. And on that website, you can find evaluation tools. So if your school is thinking about adopting materials or has already adopted materials, you can look over those materials with these guides to see how they meet criteria as we evaluated the books. So we're not telling you what we think of the book, but we'll tell you um, what we looked at to come to the conclusions that we came to. The other things that we have on there are lesson plans and uh, if you're if you're one of those really go-getter teachers that really wants to research and make a make a thing for yourself, we've got a lot of recommendations around primary sources and secondary sources that you can use. 
Beautiful. And these are all free, by the way. <laughs> so thank you, Our Family Coalition. Um, do you have any that are like your favorite or that you've gotten really like great feedback about? The uh, the biggest, the I think the three biggest recommendations that I have. Um, so for those folks that really want to figure out, well, not figure out, but want to get a better grasp on queer theory and why quite why we we want to talk about uh, LGBTQ issues in certain ways. There is this great um, what do you call it? Graphic novel. <laughs> yeah, there is this great graphic novel called Queer: A Graphic History by Meg John Barker and Jules Scheel. And it goes through it's again, it's like maybe, maybe a hundred pages long at most, but it is, it's, it's done in zine form. Um, so it's easy to absorb of all the different things that happen throughout history that contribute to how we think about gender and sexuality today. Uh, it's, a uh, again, you're not, you know, it's not like taking a college course on, on, <laughs> on gender history or any kind of stuff like that, but it gives you a good idea about why certain things are talked about the way that they are. The other resources that I would recommend is if you want a larger context for queer history in the United States, I think one of the better um, books that are out there right now is A Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronsky. And that is just a general overview about these things. If you want a uh, an an overview of trans history, of gender expansive history, then Dr. Susan Stryker uh, wrote this book called Transgender History. Um, and it really goes through everything from the cross-dressing laws that were um, that were put through the people who um, the people who participated in the Civil War by cross-dressing to modern things today uh, about how we argue about who is allowed onto a sports team. But I mean, you know, for those, like I, I've, I've found that as I've grown older, that my patience for reading has dwindled, which is weird, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. it's also how uh, I've learned how to absorb media. Right. Uh, if you are somebody who wants to listen more than read, then there are also a whole bunch of different podcasts that are recommended on the LGBTQ history website as well. I think the two highlights there that I would that I would recommend are the podcast by oh Eric Marcus, <laughs> Making Gay History. He was one of the first people to really document queer history. Uh, and what he did was he made a podcast out of all of the interviews he did with uh, queer historical figures. So you have primary sources here. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I heard you mention there were two podcast recommendations. So what's the second one? Yeah. And so, uh, so Eric Marcus was one of those folks. The other person that I remember reading, um, because I had to seek this out in college because it wasn't anywhere else, uh, was Layla Rupp. And she has a, a podcast, which is more academic, uh, called Queer America Teaching Tolerance. Um, and her and um, John D'Amelio, who is another historian, just talk about what it means to insert these particular queer lenses in, in different parts of history. 
So if you want an, a really academic, almost like a, <laughs> almost like a class, then this is this is a great way to absorb that. And then you know, there's no homework, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. You know, homework's overrated sometimes. <laughs> um, what I'm wondering now is, out of your own study, what have you learned about LGBTQ plus history that um, kind of shook you or maybe like left you in awe, something that you didn't expect and maybe just left an impact on you as a person? You know, I think the biggest part for me is really the reclaiming of my story as a, as a person of color. And what I mean by that is a lot of the gender um, expansiveness and same-sex relationships um, that occurred through history have been um, culturally erased. And so, for example, when we talk about uh, Native American traditions, we know that there are about 300 or so recognized um, traditions in the United States uh, and about 150 or so of those have two-spirit traditions, which means that they recognize gender-expansive people within their cultures. That this has always been here on this continent for thousands of years. Um, so that's that's one of the things. I you know as a as a personal tr- um, journey around that, I, I started wondering about okay, well if if that happened here. Did it happen in other places? And so I, I looked at the Philippines, where, where my family is from, and found out that um, bakla, uh, while it is a slur now for, for queer people, was a title uh, back in the day. Bakla and babaylan were gender expansive, um, basically shamans within, within the islands that were both leaders and advisors of different tribes in the Philippines. Mm. Um, and... I, I got to, to to feel a lot of pride around that because the the way that they were seen was really as these conduits between gender and that they they did have um, leadership roles to the point where through the Spanish occupation they were some of the last fighters to to fight against the Spanish and the, wow. the, the occupation. My mind is blown. Right? <laughs> What an incredible so, piece of history. I have never known that before. And that just makes me wonder, like, how much is that in the regular everyday person's consciousness in the Philippines? I, it's, so the funny thing is, I learned about this and I asked my aunts. I'm like, do you know any of this? They don't. Hmm. Right? Because it was it was part of the occupation to erase that culture so that there's it's 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 easier to to conquer. Mm. You know what, Rick? We're just going to get off into another tangent. We have a podcast about colonialism, the one about San Francisco. We're just going to keep going on and on and on. I know. This episode's never going to (laughs) end. But like all good things, this episode does have to come to an end. (laughs) So um, I'm wondering um, where can folks get in contact with you? Um, And I know our family coalition has so many different resources. You have PDs, you have um, family workshops and things like that. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. um, what are your, your personal favorites? What are some fan favorites and where do you recommend people to, to go to? Uh, Of the, of the workshops that we offer, you mean? Mm Mm-hmm. You know the the it's funny the the fan favorites are are around gender 
because there is a lot of things that people, usually it comes from a place of, we don't know, um, we don't know what to do. We just had a student come out as gender expansive, not necessarily transgender, but just, you know, um, expansive in how they understand gender or how they express gender. And uh, we want to be supportive. And that comes from both um, families and from educators. And so I think this is why this particular topic has become um, really popular with folks because we really, those of us who are, you know, born before the 2000s, right? Before the 2000s, we have a really binary understanding and it's really hard to shift, even though you can see like some of the, the, the ways that it's been harmful. It's still, it's, it's hard. Uh, A conversation that I've been in recently is, uh, is dude gender neutral? (laughs) Can can I, can I use dude to, uh, to refer to, to things because I use it as a gender neutral and, Uh you know, um, I know this is an education podcast, but to be crass, right? Like if you really think dude is a gender neutral term, ask a cisgender straight man, how many dudes he slept with. And I promise you, I promise you it is not a gender neutral term at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, that is, I think that is also, um, popular because of word of mouth people learn a lot of things around the own their own ways of navigating gender um, no matter how you identify and how um, how it has been detrimental to really to really understanding how we care for one another or how we could care for one another if we didn't have rigid boundaries around how those were laid down on us Right, right. So where can listeners reach you at? So the way to reach me is, I mean, email is really easy. It's just rick at ourfamily.org. You can see the work that we do at our main website, uh, ourfamily.org. Uh, I already mentioned lgbtqhistory.org. There is a there is a contact us sheet where you can request more information, tell us things that you need to, or even re- request a workshop uh, on that website. And I think, you know, the, the project that I am most excited about, uh, and it's, it's, it's going to sound like I'm pandering. I'm totally not. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you are. You're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is uh, you know, one, is, is really working with the students. I, in a lot of ways, I miss um, having that hands-on experience being the, uh, the youth coordinator at the... Um, at the LGBT center, but you know, when I, when I was able to work with your students and really see how they were approaching the ideas around how to be inclusive for their uh, LGBTQ peers, like I, (laughs) I don't know if it was, it was clear on the zoom call, but I was tearing up like some of Mm. like, uh, I, as I, I and I, I've told my friends about this, right? When yeah. I was growing up, my context for LGBTQ issues was that people died of AIDS, mm. and that the boys would play smear the queer on the playground, mm. and that was my middle school. 
And so we're, we're looking at your students who are also in middle school, who are not playing those games, who are not saying those things, who are not saying that that's the only way to be gay, and instead are saying, we see you. We want you to be part of us. We know that sometimes you feel like you're not, and we want you to know that this is your place too. Yeah. That's a message people my age never heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I get very excited about the the things that I do with with your students, my interns right now who are all um who are all college students. Um I've worked with a few high school students and the way that they are really engaging in uh, creating resources around history. It is it's like it's pr- it's providing water to somebody who has never drunk water before. They are, they're, they're, they're so eager to learn and to share. I don't even have to, I don't have to do anything. There's wow, no, there's no the task best. mastery, anything that I have to do because they just, they've never heard this. They've never seen anything that affirms who they are in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're so motivated to make sure that uh, the, the the folks that are coming up, your kids and the kids that are younger than them, my 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 nieces and nephews, right, uh, don't know a world where where queer is anything but just part of everyday life. Mm, that's a whole word. So, it wasn't a pander, but I know it sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit it so it doesn't sound so pandery. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Rick, I absolutely love the time that we spent together. Thank you so much. Um, We'll have our other podcast coming up, okay? (laughs) Hatakai Unboxed is hosted and produced by me, Alec Patton. But this episode was hosted and produced by Gene Katubai. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. We've got links to all the resources Rick talked about in our show notes, so check those out. Thanks for listening.